Tony Duchesne here, and before we get into the Carla Malden episode, I want to tell you about the screenwriting class I'm teaching at UCLA Extension online. We start on June 24th. It's all online. To register, go to uclaextension.edu and search for Duchesne. Hi, I'm Carla Malden, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Hi, you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Carla Malden. She's the author of After Image, a broken-hearted memoir of a charmed life, and co-author of Where Do I Start with her father, Carl Malden. Her latest book is her debut novel, and it's entitled Search Heartache. Carla, how are you? I'm good, all things considered. And you, Tony? Well, I'm okay. I'm happy to be here with you. This just this excites me, because I what I do is just I get to talk to writers like a couple of times a week. And it's what fills my heart amidst the lunacy of normal world life. And now we're in lunacy of pandemic life. I was going to say, you're using normal in quotes for sure. <laughs> Air quotes. What was it? Yeah, so you, I know you've done screenwriting and, I, and you've poured your heart into uh, the, the working on memoir. What was it like? doing the transitions a novel, I mean, when did you go, you know what, I have a novel in me? Maybe answer that question first. I tend to throw way too many questions. Whatever answer you answer is, compl- is always right, so. Okay, it's the, it's the Donald Trump school of answering questions. Whatever, whatever answer, whether it goes with the question or not. <laughs> no, no, don't bring it. No, no, no. Bring that energy here. <laughs> we, will, we will not name that person again. Well, I had, as you mentioned, I had written a memoir of losing my husband at a relatively young age, sort of youngish widowhood. And it was, a, it traced the last year of his life because he lived about a year after being diagnosed with cancer and the first year of my life without him. So sort of that transitional period. And um, I got really tired of focusing on myself after that and wanted to, play with some other people. So I thought I would turn to fiction. And also at that time, this weird phenomenon started to occur amongst my circle of friends, which is that here I had been widowed. And of course I had no choice in that, but I noticed that a lot of my friends were starting to be separated and get divorced. And it really infuriated me because as I said, I had had no choice in having my life uprooted and flattened. And it seemed to me they did have a choice. Um, I, I came to soften that position over the course of writing Search Heartache, but I kind of wanted to explore that with a fictional couple, a marriage on the rocks, and how maybe in a way, because of their upbringings and the psychology of their lives, they felt they didn't have a choice, but then, at the risk of giving something away, I also wanted to try to give them a happy ending. That's so fun. I get, so let me ask you, because you said you were furious about your friends getting uh, divorced and separated, which makes so much sense um, when you don't have a choice. Did, did it kind of start from a place of, because this is where I start usually when I'm starting a project. It comes from anger. Or it comes from frustration at something, and then I dive in further and further and get empathetic. Did it kind of start at a, 
I think those are the two perfect words, anger and frustration. And, and just, I, it, was, it was a very judgmental place on my part too. It's like, you know, why are you throwing away a perfectly good marriage? And then I came to believe over the course of hearing their stories more and more and also writing Search Heartache that maybe these seemingly perfect marriages were not so perfect after all and were really deeply frayed. So, and that maybe sometimes there is no choice but to say, I have no choice but to walk out. Maybe that's a no choice situation also. Yeah. I mean, and this is going to sound crass because I'm divorced and I was married for 13 years. And part of it, there was a little side of me that went, it would have been cooler to be a widower. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. You, you certainly get sympathy. Um, it's, it's, I think it's just different. I think it's a different kind of grief. Um, it's, it's just different. Yeah. You, you know. I, I, I did at one point, I, I, my daughter and I, upon losing her father, we would say to one another, at least we know he really didn't want to leave, <laughs> you know, and there was some solace in that. It's interesting because, yeah, and then I had the other thought, I, I'm exposed, I'm going to expose all my terrible inside thoughts and then you can love it. like, but um, I, and then I had the other thought of, you know what? Now, if, if I was a widower, then people would uh, would would have uh, treated her as uh, in higher reverence. <laughs> it's funny you should say that because I have since remarried, uh-huh. and my second husband um, was divorced, uh-huh. and of course I was widowed, and he has told me that when we first started being a couple, that people said to him, "Oh my God, I could never do that because." she must just worship her, her deceased husband. And, you know, he must be sort of elevated to sainthood, which is kind of the case, but not really the case. I mean, I remember well how imperfect he was, but I, I see that that's a, it's a different kind of playing field. Yeah. Um, and then plus, plus having, a, I, um, you know, I don't want to bring this whole thing down, but having a having a daughter with uh, you, you know your husband, that's that's that adds so much more elements of just the heartbreak to the whole thing. It does, it does, but it also makes it luckier. I, it's I think it's much easier when you have somebody you have to get up in the morning for. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. Now I got a smash cut to the silly thing in your bio. I love this part. Carla Malden lives in Brentwood with her husband and 10 minutes depending on traffic from her daughter. <laughs> now that I've lived in Los Angeles for a while, I get on so many levels and I was trying to figure out, okay, so what's a good 10 minutes from Brentwood? You know, is, is she in the Valley or, does she, or is she more? It's <laughs> she's, she's South and East a little bit. Mm. She's sort of Southwestwood South- <laughs> near the West, near the, what was the West side pavilion. Oh, okay, cool. I, yeah. I love depending on traffic because because ten minutes could be an hour sometimes. Yes, yes, absolutely. What well, um as it's I love talking to Native Angelinos um and just get, it, it's great because the um people who grew up here just don't know how we live like because like, you know growing up in San Francisco it's just like Los Angeles just was like the greatest place to ever grow up you know and then. Oh, and then you're around all these stars who are just, they're all sparkling personalities. And I'm saying, and you were, you probably had a lot more access to that with your dad. Yeah. Um, yes. 
the the people around our dinner table when I was growing up were pretty fabulous and and fascinating and in some ways kind of spoiled me for the rest of my grown-up life. Where are my fascinating friends like that, you know? Yeah. Um, I have lovely, lovely friends, but you know, they weren't quite as sparkly maybe. But um, my father was extremely down to earth. He was not a, what, you know, what one thinks of as the stereotypical celebrity at all. Yeah. He, was, he was not particularly social. He had a few really, you know, lovely, dear, close friends, but he was, he was a working actor yeah. and also sort of the whole cult of celebrity, which he would never have fit into anyway. He was a character actor, but that whole cult of celebrity hadn't really developed in the way that it has now. Yeah. Yeah. And that, it, it always seems like, and then you have, I don't know, I came down here and then I started meeting some of my, you, know, so you meet some heroes and you're just like, oh, wow, that, you know, maybe that person's just having a bad day. It just turns out that everyone's just a normal person just trying to get through life, which is so right. much to realize. Right. But I, I will jump in and say, no one has ever said that to me about my father. I, I am very proud to say that I've heard nothing but wonderful stories. People come out of the woodwork to tell me, oh, I had, you know, a little encounter with your father on a street in San Francisco or whatever at some point. And they're always, you know, warm and lovely stories. And I, and as a, as a San Franciscan, cause I'm always a San Franciscan, even though I'm, I don't uh, live there anymore. Uh, watching reruns of streets of San Francisco as a kid, that was just meant everything to me. Cause that was, I lived like 10 minutes outside the city. So I was like, is that what San Francisco's really like? You know, was, I was just so. Not of crime and murder. <laughs> and, uh, no, that was a fun show. Yeah. Were you ever I think, you I ever think either the first or one of the first shows to be filmed entirely on location. Oh, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that was part of the premise was that it was going to feature the city of San Francisco as almost another character in the show. I love that. And just being reminded because even when they went into interiors, it probably usually wasn't sound stages. It was apartments and actual structures or no? Um, it was both. It was both. The first, it ran five years. The first year they went back and forth between San Francisco and LA and they did the interiors on sound stages in LA and it was too grueling on everybody, the crew, everybody. So they moved it entirely to San Francisco. So they had sound stages and um, real working interiors. Yeah, because the because there's something about the moldings and uh, of of old houses in San Francisco that are so unique. Yeah, yeah. the Victorian. So yeah. yeah, and that when you see when you see like exactly the same thing, you know, but but TV lies and movies lie constantly as well. You know, it's like on Madam Secretary and other shows. It's like, oh, that's the Oval Office, and it's just like, no, it's a set. It's not TV lying. It's TV magic. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, wait, what, were, you, were you on set for, uh, with your dad? I, I visited occasionally. I was in college when they were shooting. Um, I, I visited occasionally. I, I didn't spend time, a lot of time on movie sets at all. Yeah. Um, again, it's, things were sort of different then. That's what my father went to work and he came right. home from work. You know, my dad was a mechanic. Wasn't, oh, I'm sorry. We didn't go on a family trip on location that happened to coincide with summer break. But otherwise, we weren't there. Yeah. See, my dad was a mechanic, so I would get to go to work with him every once in a while. And then, 
And then they all had grease on their hands. So they had the degreaser after work. So everyone would throw their towel on. And I would like, I just remember degreasing with all these huge men and getting the grease. And they're like, you got to get it all off. And it was about having the grease off and taking the towel out at the right yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've had a lot of good hand washing practice for these days. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when I was four and five years old, I, was, I, I did very well. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe my immunity's been good for that. Oh my God, talk about hand washing. I'm hand washing in my dreams now. Oh my God, my hands are like raw meat. They're so chapped. Yeah, it's it, it's uh, it's just it's hilarious. Yeah, that, okay, that if was, you say so. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying that with uh with with, <laughs> with dread for uh for those who can't see my face. It's hilarious. It's yeah. kind of like, it's a cry for help. It's hilarious help. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I don't know. It, it, I sometimes I feel like this could be hope for uh, for the human condition. And I, I fluctuate. I swing wildly, day to day, sort of hour to hour. Whether think whether I'm thinking it's a portal to a new and far better world or the end of civilization as we know it. Yeah. You know, and if you watch Tiger King which I did, which I something I would normally not do, but did since we're stuck at home. Then you think, well, okay, it probably is the end of civilization because why not? You know? I can't bring myself to watch it. I just, oh. I only know the premise. And I'm or, like, I can't bring that into my you life. You kind of have to. I do? I think you might have to. Okay. Give it a try. I, right. I felt the same way. Okay. Okay. I'll do it. It's, it's um, Joseph Conrad, you know, Heart of Darkness, The Fascination of the Abomination. That's really what it is. All right. Okay, cool. It's kind of like watching a car. It's like driving by a car crash and just having to look. Yeah. Yeah. A toothless car crash. Oh, humanity. What's going what's gonna to happen? I, I, I want to kiss humanity on the cheek and pinch it and go, you're going to be okay. Just just stay out of the way of your own ego, please. Just, yes, just. yes. Yeah. Um, I, so uh, this, uh, when, when, was this the first novel that you actually worked on or did you try other novels before this? This was really the first. Really? Oh, mm -hmm. great. But... Not the last. I'm working on a second. Good. Um, and, and, as, and as you were working on the novel, the, um, I know you have a screenwriting experience, too, because that's, that's in fiction and not dealing so much with the, you know, the facts and whatever of a memoir. But um, what, what did you find? Like, what, what was the difference when you were working on the novel? Did you, did you find a different? Uh, was there a different rhythm to it? Oh, very much so. I, I took embarrassingly long to finish this book. I hope it doesn't take me that long again. Um, I sort of would work on it and put it away for a while and come back. And then at one point I changed from third person to first person because it's a lot going on in the lead character, Mora's head. And it just served me better to, to really be fully in her head. So that was a big rewrite. Anyway, it was, it was a process and um, I really, love it. I, I, I loved the luxury of being able to be in a character's head and instead of having to translate it to dialogue or behavior, as you do with a screenplay, just to be able to just riff on that. And particularly, this is the story of a woman coming a little bit unraveled. So it was fun to just pull that 
thread and have her fall apart. And, and I love that you had to switch uh, point of view. And you probably did that in rewrites. Yes. And I, a massive rewrite. Yeah. I've had to do the, I've done the exact same thing. I had a third person. I had to switch to first person. And I, when I realized it, it was like my heart broke. And I was like, are you kidding me? And I had to do this whole technical type rewrite and then come back to it. But I was like, I have students ask me, they're like, what's better, first person or third person? I'm like, no, that's not the right answer. The right answer is you need to get to know your character. You need to write your character. And then they sometimes they'll find out that they're in the wrong point of view. Right. It's like, what serves the story. Yeah. 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 So I did that. I, I thought of it as sort of putting the hazmat suit on and going back in, you know. Right, exactly. And it's and essentially authors need to wear like an emotional hazmat suit, I think, just to deal with the to deal with the monumental task of novel writing. Right. And the and the cutting. The stuff yes. that ends up on the uh, cutting room floor. Yeah. Did did that surprise you how much cutting you had to do? Um once I became less afraid of it. It was it was kind of fun, and I just slashed and burned. But I had a real issue at first with you know not wanting to, as they say, kill your darlings. You know, oh, that sentence is so beautiful. Who cares? It doesn't doesn't mean anything. You know. Yeah. Well, but what's also great about that is that sentence doesn't mean it goes into it's obliterated and burned into outer space. You still have that sentence, and I find that um, uh, that it, these things end up in other in other work. Right. One 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 hopes, or something, some remnant of them. Right. I, I, and also, even the bad sentences. I feel like I feel like everything needs. I feel like everything points towards what needs to serve the story in the end. So, forty pages of awful writing needed to be written in order to get to. Right. And that that's part of the nice. Um, screenwriting background, I think. I think that served me in that that's such a um, pared down sort of format. It's really just a blueprint. So I was used to losing extraneous things. With screenwriting, um, screenwriting is, I've done both and both like, both scare me on so many levels and then I adore both on so many levels. But with like, but with screenwriting, it's almost like, even with a line of dialogue, it's got to be a tincture of, here's how I do it. So this may be the wrong way to do it, but it's got to be almost a tincture of probably what would have happened in maybe 20 pages of a novel, but it has to be conveyed in such a boom, boom, boom. But there's so many more layers to it. Is, is that how it works for you or no? I never thought of it that way, but I, I can certainly relate to that. I know. Um, Elia Kazan, and I think in his autobiography, he wrote that directing is turning psychology into behavior. And I think screenwriting is a, is a version of that. And that's sort of what you're saying, is filling it down into a moment or a line of dialogue. Yeah. And then getting out of the way to let actors and directors do their part. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can help me on this because I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm always pushing it and going. Okay, here's all the scenarios the actors may look at, and all the scenarios the directors may look at, and then I'm trying to like almost get it ready for them. And sometimes maybe I should just 
go, you know what, just plead ignorance and just go in. <laughs> well, um, having had a father who was an actor and took his craft really, really seriously, I think that also served me in writing because when I was actually a little girl, I would often cue him. It was sort of a fun thing to do. I would cue him as he was learning a part because he was one of those people who just prepared like crazy. And sometimes I would say a line and then he, he would have a line of dialogue after that. And he would say to me, cut that, cut that line of his. Cause he would say, I can act that. I can act that. I don't need to say it. Right. So I think that's sort of what you're talking about too. It's just let them, let them do it how they do it best. And, and the beauty of it is, is just being, a, yeah, being around an actor who goes, oh, no, wait, I can show that. I don't need to say that. I just can show that. In a... Right. And, and saying it actually weakens it, yeah. would weaken the moment, you know. Did you ever get the acting bug when you were younger? No. No? Definitively no. No, not yeah. at all. Uh, no. It, it, what, what, like, because you're growing up here, did some of your friends become actors? Um, oh, let me think about that. Uh, I was friends with the sister of the Bridges boys, Bo and Jeff. Yeah, yeah. So I knew them growing up. Um, but no, I didn't actually have a lot of friends. Uh, I, have, I have friends who are writers. I have a couple of friends who went into directing. Don't have a lot of friends who went into acting. Yeah. I wonder if it's more of a uh, people coming here to act thing. I think that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, 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 you know, they're the second generation ones too, but. Yeah. That's the truth. Uh, and then so, because um, I've, I've taught screenwriting classes, I've taught novel writing classes, and it, it always seems like when I'm teaching a novel writing class, when I have a screenwriter in there, and sometimes it's like screenwriters where I'm going, oh, dear Lord, I love your work. <laughs> but then I have to like, almost get them out of themselves and go, oh, no, 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 overwrite. I really need to get them to overwrite, overwrite, stop, mm-hmm. stop, uh, stop the, um, stop the, 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 what's going on inside of your head. Sort of and, pre-editing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you find the same with when you were working? Uh, you got to work on memoir after working on screenplays, is that right? Or? Yeah, I, I, um, I, was, I was a screenwriting team with my first husband, and then when he died, I really didn't want to go back to that form at that time. So I had the memoir. Um, and that, because it was so deeply personal and painful, just sort of wrote itself. Um, it's, it was, uh, I, I have, weirdly, Tony, I have very little memory of working on that project. Um, I remember the rewriting, but it just sort of wrote itself in a way. Um, and then the novel was, you know, that I, I feel like I learned how to write a novel on this book. Is it crazy? It's like, we have to write a novel to learn how to write a novel. Yeah. One of the really weirdest do. things in the world. Yeah. It's, it, and then, and then, and then if it's a good one, it gets published and you know, sometimes you got to scrap two or three novels and then we get onto the, the, uh, to really knowing, but isn't it kind of fun to be in the novel club now? I love it. I really love it. I, I feel in some ways more comfortable with this format than I ever did with screenwriting. We were, I was 
I loved being a team with my husband. He was, he thought he was also a director and uh, did film graphics and he thought much more visually than I, and I thought more in terms of the words. So now that's what I, that's my thing. <laughs> I yeah. can just play with the words. Yeah. And, and it's, I don't know. It's it, for me, it was a club I always wanted to join. And when I was able to finally like join it, that was, that was, I was like, all right, nothing better comes from this. So, and then, you know, and then all of a sudden more better things come and you're like, Oh wait, Oh, okay. There's more struggle to have. All right. I get it. I get it. Um, yeah. But uh, you're, and you're working on another novel now, even after you've done the torture of, 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 of the first one. Why even after I'm, I'm trying to be a little stricter with myself mm -hmm. and get a little bit of a more detailed scene by scene outline and try to trying to adhere to it a little more at least just have that net a little more securely in place i'm trying <laughs> everything's trying do you usually start with an outline um i didn't with search heartache and i think that's part of why it took me so incredibly long uh it, I, it, it, it meandered the first draft really meandered before i knew what it was about and then i had to go back and pair away do you think it would have been do you think it would have been the same novel though if you had an outline instead of having the instead of having time to meander probably not no by almost by definition i don't see how it could have been so yeah. maybe happy accident i, I love happy accidents yeah. yeah um and then and then uh coming from uh Coming from so this, like, okay, full confessional here. Like I, I try to, I'll work on antagonists and they'll be based on people that have really pissed me off in my life. And oh, then, sure. and I'll keep working on them, working on them, working on them. And then maybe about third or fourth draft, I just realize it's me. I realize <laughs> it's everything wrong with me. Um, and, but I do like to start from that anger place. I don't know if, uh, uh, it, was there something about um, Search Heartache where it kind of started with like an anger or was it more, uh, uh, oh, this is an interesting angle. How, what was the impetus of the idea? I love how you're looking at me like, Tony, can you throw me 12 more questions at once? <laughs> I'm going to one. <laughs> I'm going to pick one. Um, pick well, sort of, <laughs> okay, my favorite would be yes. <laughs> Okay, great. Um, next question. Um, as I was mentioning before, something to do with marriages around me. Um, Carla, then uh, it. Yeah, yeah, lost you there for a second. Can you hear me? Uh, I hear you now. Uh, can you okay. restart your wonderful answer that I that I missed? I'll do my best. It it started. The germ of it did have to do with anger and frustration about seeing all these marriages crumble around me when I had not had that choice. Um, so it did start with that. But then I was really fascinated by the lead character, the woman who's going through this. Mm -hmm. And apropos of your saying, you sort of look around at this character and suddenly realize it's you. There's a, a lot of her that is me, stuff I'm proud of. She's, she's sort of family first, loyal, has a really strong, almost rigidly strong moral core, but she's also a little, um, a little nuts in some ways. And I, I'm not proud of those elements, but I definitely knew where they came from and they were me. Uh, in fact, it's funny because 
the the premise of the novel has to do with this woman uh, coming upon something on her husband's computer. And a little bit of it is an exploration of virtual infidelity versus real world infidelity. And she can't stop pulling the thread on his computer until she really unravels her marriage and her life. And it's kind of in, in the people who've read the book so far with whom I've discussed it, though it's kind of a Rorschach test. It's sort of a litmus test. And it's mostly women who say, oh, she doesn't overreact at all. I completely understand. And men seem to say, oh, well, she's really batshit crazy, isn't she? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's interesting, but I understand, the, I understand that kind of compulsion to not let go of something, even when you know it's not good for you. I mean, I, I understand that. I have done that. Well, I think that's, I think that's part of love because love is just crazy. You know, it's, love isn't all, love isn't all like roses and flowers and chocolate and love, love is a, love is a constantly moving in motion. And when, and when our hearts are so tied with another person, the unraveling can be easy. It feels like. Right. Well, that's what happens to her. That's exactly what happens to her. And the and the, also the thought of an emotional affair. I didn't even realize that was a word until like a decade ago, and it makes so much sense that. Um, and now that we have virtual stuff, you know, it's like you can right. you can have an affair with someone without even entering a hotel room with them these days. It 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 could be breaking the marriage vows or the, what the parameters the couple have set up as what they can and can't do outside right. marriage. Well, this is a woman, a middle-aged woman who finds herself at a point in her life where she's just sort of profoundly disappointed. So she's at a particularly vulnerable moment for this unraveling. And I, I started to think a lot about it, that she has very high expectations, none higher than for herself. And the flip side of expectation really is sort of betrayal. You know, I held up my part of the bargain. I did everything I was supposed to do. I was a good student, I was a good daughter, I was a good wife, all of that. So how come this is what's happening to me? And it makes that betrayal particularly bitter. Yeah. There's an old, uh, oh, is it, um, who sang that song? I know Richard Hell sang it. Is it Richard Hell? Betrayal Takes Two. There's this old song called Betrayal Takes Two. Okay. And I never knew the meaning of the song until after I got divorced. And then I kind of went, and I, and, I had found out that uh, my wife had been cheating on me and I was holding this moral superior ground. And then later I kind of came into a little more of a realization that, Oh no, she ended something that was important to end and neither of us knew how to end it. Mm -hmm. So I actually had gratitude that, that, you know, that it's, I, I didn't agree with how it ended but it needed to end and someone needed to act out and I was acting out in my own way. So, um, so then that, that song betrayal takes two kind of came into my head and I was like, wow, we weren't communicating for a very long time. If we had really just stuck to our communication skills, we probably could have said, Hey, this is not working out or, come together in a different way. Right, right. Well, that's very much what Search Heartache is, is yeah. about. So, yes, yeah. I get that. The soul searching. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. What does your husband think of the book? Wait, what does he think of it? Well, uh, he loves it, which is great. And was yeah. very, very supportive. Um, he is one of the men, he may have been the first of the men to say, well, she's really batshit crazy, isn't she? Uh-huh. And I said, no, not at all. I, I understand her. She's, she's reacting completely uh, reasonably. So we've had several versions of that conversation. And that probably brought your marriage closer together because you can uh, figure out the middle ground on that or no? Or did it tear? It certainly highlights differences between how men and women look at relationships and all kinds of things that, you know, that women, I think men don't fully grasp the extent to which women live in their own heads. Yeah. I think that's a lot of what this book is about. Yeah. What, um, what, and living in, uh, live, living in your own head, what, what does that entail? Like, how would you define that to a male like me? <laughs> that, um, that you met th- that you 35 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, first of all, there's, there's the language element. I think what, what men say to women really reverberates in women's heads. And I think men don't understand that, that women starting when they're, you know, middle school girls sharing conversations they had with boys that get parsed like ridiculously, you know, well, did he mean this or did he mean that? But he said it this way. And the emphasis was on this word. I I think men don't understand the weight that their words are given. That's number one. And number two, I think just um, the degree to which women look for connectedness and when they feel that that's being you know shredded a little bit how how deeply painful that is yeah because i'm mainly here just to get relationship advice so this is you'll get my bill (laughs) (laughs) um it it is intriguing when um like when when, uh when me and my girlfriend have uh you know when we have uh our our you know serious conversations together um it tends it tends to be you said this and you said this and like you meant this and i kind of go oh i think i was just tired that day right exactly what i'm talking about and she remembers right she remembers everything verbatim right exactly it's like yeah you you went falsetto on and and then you dropped down to you know right and it's and it's not um and and I think that's where we need to come together and go hey that's not that we can't define that as batshit crazy we need to define that as this is the this is how we need to understand how we're communicating with each other right exactly exactly and um, yeah that's one of one of the things I really wanted to explore in in this book and had yeah. fun doing yeah and, and then after you're exploring the character and exploring the arc. Then does your communication with your husband kind of change a little bit? Do, do you like, do you get to kind of go, wait a second, my character did this and that's, and the, uh, you know, do, is it, or does it help or does it hinder um, answer any of those questions? I'd have probably have to think about that at a little greater depth, but off the top of my head, I would say that um, it may be highlights possible pitfalls. Mm-hmm. that we can sort of, you know, skirt around a little more easily. Yeah. Um, or I think we've probably had a, an argument or two 
where one of the other of us referenced the book, you know. So yeah, it's it um it's a nice touchstone. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny that what you know because it's it's so intriguing how a novel gets out there and the reader develops their own relationship with it. And I just I love that that everyone brings their own baggage, that where they're from, they bring it in, and then um and they relate to it in very different ways. But then there's the author who's relating to it with her with your husband, and it's just like it acts it holds its relationship with the author and the, their and how they were right. Yeah. Right. Well, he, he, and I don't even remember what it was, but not long ago, he sort of was skimming through it again for the whatever time and said something about, oh, it's, it's really about such and such. And I thought, well, no, it's not about that at all. But then I realized there are a million readers out there thinking it's about something that I don't think it's about. And that's totally legitimate. You know what I usually do in those situations when people go, you know what, I really like the imagery of this and how it related to Greek times and blah, blah, blah. And my, in my brain, I'm just going, I have no idea what you're saying. Yeah. But, in my, but outside I go, I'm glad you found that. Right. Thank you so much for picking yeah. up on that. Yeah. <laughs> just, it's just like they make me feel like really smart for yeah. – like I didn't do any of that work, but and you know, no, 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 don't say that. Just nod and go. Thank you for realizing that. But then sometimes it happens where they pick up on something that really was intentional that you think no one's ever going to get, and that is kind of thrilling. Oh, do you, do you have right. an example of that? Have you, has yeah. that happened with you? That's happened to me. Yeah. Do you, do you have a specific in mind? Or I no? can't think of one right now, Tony. But yeah, no, I'll, I'll think about it. But yeah, I know that that has happened where someone said, "Oh, you know that that moment where such and such it really meant this," and I. Well, yeah, I, I, I just put that in for myself, you know, but yeah. that's kind of fun. Did you, because uh, I, I have, oh my God, I have like three friends right now with their debut novels coming out and they can't tour. They're coming out this month and it's, it breaks my heart because I've seen them just, uh, one of my friends, Alia, who uh, she was on the show last, uh, Drinks with Tony, I had her on last week and um, we taped in December though. And she, I know she's been working on this book for a decade. And then it comes out, and then now she can't tour. Were you able to tour? Were you able to do? Um... I got. Um, I started, and then I was aborted. <laughs> I had a really lovely um, signing at Diesel Bookstore, which is a little independent bookstore at the Brentwood Country Mart, which was so much fun and really lovely. And that's that's my hood, and it just was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I'm was supposed to be at the huge flagship Barnes and Noble in New York in a couple of weeks and I won't be there. So yeah, it, that's disappointing. Yeah, that would have been fun. And then uh, LA Times Festival of Books would have been last weekend, which... That's right. I was supposed to have all of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I missed that. I, have you been to the Festival of Books before? I was there with uh, the book I did with my dad, with his autobiography. Oh, okay. The Green that's Room is amazing, isn't it? It's fantastic. So much yeah. fun. It's like, it's the reason I go is just so I can be in the green room, see all my favorite author friends I haven't seen I know. once a year. So much fun. Yeah. Eat free food. It's yeah. Nice, it's nice to be behind the curtain on that and go, oh, yeah, this is where the pretty stuff happens. <laughs> <laughs> Were you on a UCLA campus for uh, your, your dad's book? I'm sorry. Say that again. Uh, the Festival of Books used to be on the UCLA campus. Yes. Right? It was at UCLA. Oh, that green room! That green room was amazing. Yeah, really fun. Out, I was on. I was on the UCLA one too. So. Uh huh. Yeah. And I took my parents. My par- My parents were there, 
because you get uh, you get two, you know, you, know, well, you got to bring your publicist and your agent in. And I'm like, well, this is dad publicist and that's mom agent. And um, they didn't leave the green room. <laughs> I could, I could yeah. barely get them to my panel. <laughs> like, what? I'm like, you guys, you know, I'm actually working here. <laughs> well, I did get to, for Search Hardike, I did get to go to the um, American Booksellers Association Winter Institute in Baltimore at the end of January. Oh, how was that? That was amazing. Also really fun in that it was so heartening to meet all these sort of little independent bookstore owners and mom and pop bookstores all across the country. So that, that was a lovely experience. And that's what's so much fun about this too, is we can just geek out and be fans of our, of people who are just, it's just like, Oh my God, I, I've loved, you know, I've loved your work. And then they come and see your panel and buy your book. And it's, it's, I know. it still blows my mind that this actually is a reality. It, it's yeah. Had you, had you been to Baltimore before? Um, I had been to Baltimore before. Um, my sister's husband actually went to medical school there. So I, as a very young girl, I went and visited them. That was, that was my entire experience of Baltimore before this. It's, it's lovely. You, it's nice. Yeah, I want to go. So I used, you know, when I was a kid, it was all about going to Paris, going to Prague, going to, now I want to go to Philly. I want to go to Baltimore. I have like these. Well, have, that's, don't you think we're not going to be traveling internationally for a few years at least? I'm, it's going to be all I can do to get myself on a plane domestically, I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm very concerned about the psychology of reentry, you know. <laughs> I, I, I was just uh, chatting with a friend of mine because um, we were talking about the state of affairs with the pandemic and the, the, men, the, the, uh, the mental fallout, I think, is going to be huge. It's, I yeah. think that really needs to be addressed. Even, even you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be easy for people to kind of re-enter. No. And it's, it, we really have to wrap our minds around, okay, we're still in the human collective. We're still going to make some changes. And this, I, went to, I went to the grocery store yesterday, uh, and I was like, why am, I, why am I breathing so hard? And I got my Fitbit, and I looked, and my heart rate was at 120. Wow. There. And I'm going, wow. okay, time to hold the breath and breathe and calm down. But it's just like just going to the grocery store is a new monumental stress. It's well, I really have not left the house in about six weeks at all because my daughter had a new baby a couple of weeks ago, oh. and I am her chief help. Yeah. So I'm her. I'm considering her house sort of an extension of mine, right. and you know, go and help with the with the baby and do all the housework and everything. And so I wanted to be sure I was really self isolated before the baby was born. So. I haven't been in a store in or anything six weeks, I think. Wow. It's pretty freaky. And that's rough mentally too, because when you're not going out and struggling with the, you know, with the peoples who are struggling with things, it's, it, yeah. it takes its toll. It's not, uh, you know, it takes its toll not doing those things too. Oh, very much so. Very much so. And as I said, the growing fear of returning to doing them. Yeah. 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 Congratulations. Is this your first grandkid? It is. It is. Oh my God. Okay. So you, so how excited are you to spoil the crap out of that? So kid? excited. Yeah. So excited. Are you already spoiled? I'm sorry. Was it a daughter? It's my daughter who had a baby boy. Baby boy. What, um, so have you, what's, can I ask his name? You don't have his to say name. You can't. Well, her, her father, who is, as we know, deceased, was named Lawrence. So this baby's name is Lennon Lawrence. 
I like that. Yeah. And um, and Lennon when as in, Lennon as in John. <laughs> oh, not 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 the dictator. Not the dictator. No. <laughs> I'm compelled to add that. <laughs> Have you thought of that or no? Now that I brought that up. Uh, we had thought of it, but of course it's spelled differently. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Have you, what is the first, you, I bet you spoiled him already. What was the um, first spoiling joy of a grandmother? Well, I, he, yeah, I hold, I just hold them all the time when I'm there. I pretty much just hold them all the time, which I personally believe is not spoiling. No. I think that's just what you, that's just what you do. Yeah. That's what babies need. Right. Did you get? Did you give him his keys to the uh, car he's going to get when he's ten? No, no, no. He does have quite the extensive wardrobe, however, thanks to his oh, grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> hey, oh, okay. What? What's the? What that? Was there a piece of wardrobe where you're like, he needs this, and I know, I know, mom's not going to like it, but I'm bringing this wardrobe in. Nope, she's into everything just as much as I am. It was we having had an only daughter. Mm-hmm. This world of boys is very, very new to me. So when we found out he was going to be a boy, which was very early on in the pregnancy, it's so, it's so crazy now. Um, they, uh, my way of sort of wrapping my head around the idea of having a little boy was to just buy clothes, little boy clothes. So I, I was particularly fond of a red and black plaid flannel number with little sort of sheepskin cuffs, kind of very, uh, my daughter said, oh, it's like what Marlon Brando wore in On the Waterfront. So okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, oh, I would if if you bought that for me, I would wear it like three times a week. That sounds there like there you go. Yeah, there you go. You, got, you have a good fashion sense. I do, <laughs> especially in size zero to three months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's I I love um I love seeing the relationships of grandparents to you know children. It's like it's so crazy because my friends' kids are all you know. They're old enough to have kids now on their own, and I and I remember changing their diapers yeah. years ago. It's like, crazy. Where does the time go? It's <laughs> so. Pretty crazy. Yeah. It's yeah. What um, what? How far are you along with your novel? When do you are are you are you just going to finish it up and try to do another uh, one off deal? Is that how it works, or do you have a did you get a two book deal or? I well, I have another book, not the one I'm writing now. I have another completed actually uh, YA young adult novel that's coming out through my same publisher as search heartache. I, it's going to be out either in December or January, I think December. Oh. And as of now, that's called shine until tomorrow. Yeah. And young adult, how, how young is it? A, is it like middle grade or is it kind of more older young adult? It's, it's um, it could be middle school through high school. I'm, I'm hoping actually adults will like it also. It's about a girl. It's kind of a time travel piece a la Wizard of Oz, is she really traveling through time? Is she bumped on the head? Uh, about a girl who goes back to the summer of love in San Francisco. So that's got your name on it. It does. Yeah. I, um, I, it's so funny, because my girlfriend's a young adult author too, and it's just about getting the, um, it, such, it seems like so much more of a dance than just writing a novel um in the end because you have to almost market to two different people you market to the parents and to the and to the kids at the same time but you get double the readers if you do it right you just double your readership well like john green all those guys but yeah i'm hopeful that some adults will enjoy this also um well you said time travel and san francisco so i mean right right yeah the log line is sort of um it's about this 
present day, actually it's 2007, young girl who is obsessed with her future, getting to Yale and so on, as many of these young people are, who has to travel back in time to learn to live in the present. That's really the postage stamp version. Oh my God, I'm reading. I cannot wait to read that. Okay. And then I get, and then hopefully I'll get to interview you again as well. Maybe, Absolutely. It's maybe a date. Person, you know. Oh, I don't know. That might be too exciting. <laughs> I know. And then, um, and then you're working on something now. That's and now I'm working on it. And the other one is a regular, a regular grown up novel. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Carla, thank you so much for... Uh, thank you, Tony. This was really fun. Carla Maldon on Drinks with Tony. Check out her debut novel, Search Heartache. Next week on the show, we have Adam Gennady. He's the author of The Do-It-Yourself Guide to Fighting the Big Motherfucking Sad, which I feel goes well with the mental health of our human collective at the moment. His new novel is The End of Something, But Not the End of You. So join us next week, and thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony.